You're listening to a sermon series on Judges, Broken People, Faithful God. To learn more, visit linworthroadchurch.com. I have to uh, say that I really did enjoy watching the Cavs win a championship for Cleveland on Sunday night. I really enjoyed that. When I moved to Northeast Ohio in 1984, I became a Cleveland sports fan, all in Indians, Cavs, Browns, and I've even felt some guilt for leading my sons and my daughter into such sports misery. But they won against all odds. They lost the first two games by a sizable amount. No team Their opponent, Golden State Warriors, no team had ever won more games during the regular season than they had. Then the Cavs went down three games to one. No NBA team has ever come back from a three-to-one deficit. They had to win the two games in the final game on the Warriors' home court where they were virtually invincible. And to top it off, they had dreams of a city on their back, a city that, that had not seen a major sports championship for 52 years. And they did it. They did it. They did the impossible. Now, when the playoffs began, I have four children. My oldest daughter happened to wander into Sports Authority, which was going out of business, and found four calves, ugly, actually, I'm sorry, six. There were six in our family. Six calves, ugly Christmas sweaters. And she purchased them all for us before the playoffs began. So, Hopefully sometime before the year is out, you'll see me donning my particular ugly Cav Christmas sweater. It really was fun. It was really inspirational. It was a joy to watch it with my one son. But it's also true at the end of the day, it's just a game. And it certainly is not life and death. Some of you, and I know because I've been with you this week, some of you are in impossible situations. That does feel like life and death. You have a wayward child. Or maybe you're just having trouble conceiving. You're in a financial crisis. Or maybe you're just finding, trying to find a way to pay the bills month by month. Perhaps any hope of happiness from your marriage feels impossible. Or again, maybe it's more basic than that. Maybe it's just trying to find that right person. You know, as a church as well, based on things that we read and based on things that we hear, it sometimes feels like the church is in an impossible place. Can our church still be fruitful? Can we grow in depth? Can we lead people to Jesus? Can we plant new churches? Can we add to our church planning circle out there in the missions lobby. Will the church as a whole prevail, or will it just be a footnote in history? You know, most people that I know intimately have at least one segment of their life where they feel like it's just impossible. It might be a dream, a desire, a situation that's pressing on them from the outside, a dream of being used by God. It just feels impossible. And into our impossibilities, this story this morning speaks, and speaks profoundly. 
What I'd like to do before I jump into the story, I'd like to read from the Gospels this morning to begin there. I want to read John 15, 7 through 11. Will you stand for the reading of God's Word? And then we'll pray and we'll look at Judges. John 15, verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and have abided in his love. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is God's word. Father, we stand before you today as your gathered church. We worship you. We invite you to speak this morning. For those of us that have connected with you, and this morning we ask you to reset us and to retune our hearts towards your grace. And Father, if any of us are yet not vitally connected to you, may that process begin this morning. Through Christ's name we pray. Amen. You couldn't have a seat. Okay, looking at Judges chapter 7. Nick did such an excellent job last week setting us up for this particular chapter. And I'm going to begin in verse 1. We'll, we'll see the context here fairly, fairly quickly. Chapter 7, verse 1. There Jerubal, Jerubal, that is Gideon, And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. Now this spring of Herod is interesting. See a picture of it here if we could. You see this this is the actual place. It's still called the spring of Gideon. Uh, It was called the spring of Herod here. It's an abundant spring of clear, cold water that rose out of this rocky cave and then flowed out into a large pool. This word, Herod, literally means fountain of trembling. It's a perfect description of the people's state of mind. Because Midian, their enemy, was camped just a few miles north of them. Basically from here to 270. And they were preparing a massive attack. You see this slide here is actually, this is the actual physical place where this is in Israel. And you can see there the hill of Morah and the valley below it where the Midianites were encamped. Look at verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. 
Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. No court martial. (laughs) No military trial. Just go. And 22,000 people returned. And 10,000 remained. What is happening here? Well, from the very start, God wants to make clear that the credit for this victory belongs to him alone. Now, you might wonder why. Does God have a fragile ego? Is he like us, always competing uh, to be the headline act? No, not at all. Actually, it's precisely the opposite of that. God's acts here indicate how deeply the human heart longs for self-glory and how unconsciously we will construe circumstances in a way that magnifies our contribution. If God does not make a clear demonstration that it was his power alone that brought the victory, the people are apt to forget him and to lose all sight of reality. We see here that intense fear, I mean, 22,000 leave, intense fear has gripped the people. You know, for many of us, if you grew up in the church, this story has been a wonderful Sunday school lesson. But we got to crawl into their skin. This was life and death for them. Now, Chapter 8 tells us, I'm not sure if I mentioned this, chapter 8 tells us there were 135,000 men in camp, trained warriors encamped against them. And before God's military reduction plan, his version of disarmament, they were outnumbered 4 to 1. Now they are outnumbered more than 13 to 1. This is looking more and more like the Alamo. But God is not yet done. Look at verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, two separate groups. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now the way of drinking water has nothing to do with their military fitness or lack thereof. This is a sheer numbers game. And we have to wonder what Gideon is thinking here. We might imagine him wrestling with God. 
Okay, God, cutting my troops by two-thirds hurt. But I get that. I get that. You know, if these troops that were afraid had been allowed to infiltrate, you know, our whole effort could have gone south. The whole effort could have been chaos. I see, Father, I see, God, the logic of that. But God, cutting 97% more is not funny. Couldn't you have turned that little... Did I hear the drinking experiment? Maybe I messed it up. Maybe one of us messed it up. Maybe I got the numbers wrong. Maybe it was only 300 that were supposed to leave. And to all this, Artigidi may end his little diatribe by asking, Did I hear you wrong? To which God replies, No, Gideon, you heard me correctly. Gideon, yes, God. Does it look impossible to you? Yes, it does. God to Gideon, I have you exactly where I want you. Now that I have removed Gideon, every scrap of self-reliance, you see things now the way they really are. That is, you are dependent on me and not yourself for success. Self-trust is an illusion. Self-trust is an illusion. And remember, way back, I think it was the second chapter, God had said that, you know, the people of Israel were not yet ready. This new generation wasn't ready to enter into military battle. It wasn't military tactics he was talking about. It was this kind of dependence upon him that he was talking about. Look at the next passage here, the next verse. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Sand on the seashore, valley like locusts, translation, lots of people. What that means. Look at this next. I, here, when I read this scripture, here's what I think of. I think of in the Lord of the Rings there in the battle of the five armies. And I just think of this massing, tens of thousands of orcs. Do you remember that scene? You remember the trembling that it caused within the, within the people? I mean, that gives you a little bit of a picture here. Here, what's going on is that Gideon and his servant, they come up to the top of that hill and they look down into the valley and that's what they see. But in the middle of that, in the middle of this is this unbelievable occurrence. He and his servant overhear this conversation between a sentinel, a, a guard who's on the outpost. They overhear this conversation. Remember how Nick showed us last week how gentle God is. And God is a God of grace. And God works with Gideon as he is. Gideon needs reassurance. 
And he's going to get it right here. Verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man, this is a, one of the outpost guards, was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Gideon's listening to this. By the way, this is psychological warfare at its best. Somehow God has taunted his enemies. And there's no penalty flag going to be thrown on this one. Now what is the significance of a cake of barley bread? Okay, I submit to you a loaf of Wonder Bread. All right? (laughs) A cake of barley bread or a loaf of Wonder Bread especially is small, it's soft, it has virtually zero weight, and it cannot put a dent in anything, let alone overturn a tent. Never in a thousand years is this loaf of Wonder Bread going to overturn a military tent. And perhaps with a touch of additional divine humor, notice how it is not even thrown from heaven with the might of God's arm, it simply tumbles into the tent. Well, the point is simple. Something impossible is about to take place. God is going to accomplish something impossible through this lightweight, insignificant, motley crew of 300 troops. Look at verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and has said, Arise, for the Lord has given Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, Then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. God tells Gideon in advance, you're going to win this. You're going to win it. Yes, even though it's 300 to 135,000, you're going to prevail. You'll prevail because I am with you. I am with you. I am with you changes everything. It changes everything. Gideon hears the word of God, and look at how he responds. Just those two words are beautiful. He hears God's word, and look what it says he does first. He worships. That means he quieted his heart. He submitted to God. He believes in God. And then with God's power, he acts. Right there, friends, you see a pattern of what the God-centered life is. Each man is equipped with the strangest of weapons. This is God's military strategy. A trumpet and a torch inside a jar. 
Did God whisper this plan to Gideon? Did it come through a trusted confidant? Did he devise it himself in the belief that whatever he does, God's going to be behind it and bless it? We don't know. The story doesn't tell us that. But look at what happens. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke their jars. They held in their hands, their left hands, their torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, A sword for Lord, for the Lord, and a sword for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. An unbelievable victory for Israel. A victory that when the uh, Israelites that read this book some several hundred years later, likely during the time of Samuel, would have given them great courage and great inspiration. A victory that by every human appearance, by every appearance was humanly impossible. The blowing of the trumpets for war and the smashing of lights created chaos, made them seem bigger than they were. And an army that seemed so formidable fell into chaos and into confusion. Now, it's interesting. You notice here that Gideon is not completely without a military strategy. Tragedy. I can say that word, strategy. He does have one. So it's not like he's completely mindless in this. But the difference is is that this is a God-breathed strategy. It's a God-breathed one. Somehow, again, we, we see the God working here in his life. Notice he comes in the pitch blackness of night around midnight. And then he lights the sky up. And he blasts these trumpets at the precise moment of the changing of the guard. Did you notice that little detail? And we have to wonder, did weary soldiers who are abruptly awakened, perhaps also having drunk, having been drunk, and they're awakened from their sleep, and they see their returning guards coming back into the camp, we have to wonder whether or not they thought this was the enemy coming. Indeed, we know there was some fear from the very things the guards said. There was some fear about the counterattack. There's a couple of interesting things here that we see in these verses. First, notice that not everything is as it appears. Not everything is as it appears. This is helpful to think about the situation that you're facing, the impossible situation that you're confronting. Not everything is as it appears. This enemy was not as strong as it looked. It had vulnerabilities. Again, perhaps the doubts of the guards on the outpost had multiplied throughout the camp. Or maybe they reflected a general fear that they had. Likewise, we should take courage. God is stronger and He is more powerful than the situation that you're facing. 
God is greater than your weaknesses. The people that oppose Jesus today or the church may not be as invulnerable as they appear. Secondly, look at what was required for the 300 that remain. What, was, what were they asked to do, the 300, that lucky few that remained? They, like Gideon, believed God was with them, that he somehow would secure a victory for them, but they did not know how. Neither did they know would they be required to lose their lives in the process. They didn't know. They had to exercise faith. They had to be united. And notice this. They had to stand their ground. They had to stand their ground. If they had run, then the whole thing would have been lost. But they stood their ground. And so must we. We too must believe. We must obey. And we must stand our ground if we too are to see God do amazing things in our own day. Now the rest of the chapter describes Gideon's call for reinforcements, the resurgent courage in the hearts of others, and a complete and total routing of the nation of Midian. So what can we take? What can we gain? What's here that we can apply today for our stories? This is God's story. How does it intersect? Where do we write ourselves into God's story? Well, last week, Nick's talk exposed the weaknesses of Gideon, his fears, his insecurities. And in the midst of Gideon's triumph here, it should not be lost on us who the real hero of the story is. The real hero of the story is not Gideon. It is God. God is the one who miraculously rescues. And as if to underscore that reality, we will see the ugliness of pride creep back into Gideon's life in the very next chapter. The connection of these two messages underscores this reality that neither personal weakness nor overwhelming odds prevent God from doing impossible things. Not your personal weakness, not the overwhelming odds that you face, not the overwhelming odds the church faces prevents God from doing impossible things. That's the lesson from this story. That's the lesson. What impossibilities are you facing? Can you allow God to scale back your self-reliance enough to empty yourself, face your limitations, and fully trust Him? This is the place where the impossible begins to happen. This is the place where spiritual awakening can occur in your life, right here in this place, in this place. Personally, even though you have allowed me to lead you these last 15 years, I continually go through, continue to personally go through a weakening, what you might call a weakening, a scaling back of self-reliance. There are so many times in the course of a week where I cry out to God saying, God, my gifts are not adequate. They don't measure up for what's needed here. Are you sure you want me 
Are you sure you want me in this job? With my problems, with my limitations, with my penchant for pride, with my crippling insecurities, with my lack of confidence, indeed, God, how can you use me? Sometimes I see the lies of, again, I I, I say that they're heroic men or women of God, but indeed it's God working through them. But I see what others have given and what others have sacrificed or, or, or have been so dedicated to this cause. And, and I, I love the startling honesty of Larry Norman in a song he wrote called, I Am Your Servant. This is how I often feel. In that song, Norman said this, How can you use me when I have never given all? How can you use me, God, when I've never really given all? I feel that way. And then on top of these things, here in about 10 days, I and some other, I for, for myself, I'll be diving into a little something outside my comfort zone. I'm traveling to East Asia, and this trip has simply magnified some of my fears. You know, believe it or not, I'd become quite comfortable and quite secure traveling to Central America, one of the poorest nations in Central America. I've traveled there five times. I, I know the airport. I know the places that we go and stay. I, I know that we can be fruitful and effective and do significant things there in ministry. But now, for me, I'm traveling to a whole new place. I don't, there's certain comforts, certain securities that are not there. Where will I find my coffee in the morning, for example? <laughs> what about my routine? Those of you that have grown older know that the older you get, the more important your routine is to you. How will I be used? Can I be effective? We're going to be traveling uh, to three or four, myself, I think five different places in that part of the world. And we're actually going to be, uh, Eric and Jenny White told me that we'll, be, we'll actually be traveling much more than uh, indigenous uh, folks travel within that nation. And there's going to be lots of uh, connections. And what if we miss one? What if we don't make one? And it feels sometimes impossible for me. And how about for you? How about for you? What about your limitations? Can you be honest about them? Can you face your limitations but at the same time, not be bound by them, not quit. I think that's the message of this story. Because we have a God who rescues, a God of the impossible. And can you hold on to him and can you believe in him in the impossible situation that you're facing? Or again, putting this in the realm of our corporate life together, our church When the church branches out, when it takes risks, the next time we plant a church, for example, we we fill in the next there on our church planting circle, and that gets filled in with some new place, some new city. Would you consider going? Would you be willing to go? Would you be willing to leave the more safer, secure environment here to be a part of a new work of God? 
Or would you embrace the change and the inconvenience that it will cause around here? Would you do that for the sake of the gospel? For the sake of fulfilling Jesus' last words, go and make disciples of all the nations. This story speaks life to us. It, it gets our eyes off ourselves and on to a God who can help us face our limitations but not be bound by them. A God who rescues us in our impossible situations. A God, by the way, who will allow, who will allow impossible situations to come into your life that you might learn to trust Him. You might learn to believe in Him and fully trust Him. That He might even give you greater responsibilities and greater riches within the realm of His kingdom. Well, just to close here, there's plenty of lessons, aren't there, here? Plenty of admonitions, plenty of exhortations for us to think about. A lot for us to think about. And we may be inspired, you know, the way we begin that faith journey. We begin it by prayer. and That may be the thing that you do this morning. So you wrestle with God, you talk with Him, you pray. Because we have a God that rescues. But I want to... As we close here, I just I want to draw our eyes up to God and what this, sto- what this story says about God. And I'm just repeating here. We have a God who rescues. We have a God who does the impossible to save us. Even the story of judges as a whole, what does it speak to us? The story as a whole speaks that God will sustain and preserve His people. When it looked like At every moment, the people were trying to absorb themselves back into that culture. God works with them. He disciplines them. He saves them. He rescues them. They come out of it alive. And even today, even today, thousands of years later, Israel as a nation, as a culture, as a language, and even the ancient worship still takes place place to this very day because God chose it. God also chose the church and he made Jesus Christ the cosmic head of the church. And no matter how difficult or challenging it looks for the church here or around the world, the church has prevailed and the church will prevail. Why? Because Christ himself is sustaining and leading the church. Well, what does that mean I should do today? What does that mean I should do today? And here is the final challenge and application for us to focus on. And it's simply this. I want to boil it down to this point. And that is to rejoice in the impossible rescue of your life, of your soul. Rejoice. Boil this right down now to something, something here concrete for us today. I've given us plenty to think about for the future. But here today, right now, something you can work on this week is to rejoice in the impossible rescue of your soul. First Peter 1 says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls.
This was an amazing thing that happened in Judges in this era of history, a true story, a real story. But you know what is just as equally astonishing and impossible? Think about this. Do you, do you honestly believe that when you die, that your body is going to pass from this life and be reconstituted? That your body is going to be made new again? That your body is going to be transported to a new reality where you will be with God and others in an age to come? Have you ever thought about how impossible that is? It's no more impossible. I mean, it's, this is no more impossible than that. You think about it. How fantastic it sounds. And by fantastic, I don't mean filled with wonder. By fantastic, I mean how improbable it is. People talk about, in our culture, I don't mean the church, but sometimes in the church too, but people talk about heaven all the time as if it's a right, as if it's an entitlement, as if it's no big deal. But the promise of your salvation is either the greatest lie ever foisted on humanity or it is the one hope that changes the very meaning of life itself. It is the one hope that changes the meaning of what it means to be human, and it is the one hope that changes the meaning of what it means to be truly free. Your salvation is one of those two things. If you know Christ, if you know him, I want to encourage you every day this week to ponder that meaning, to ponder that impossible rescue, to explore its depths, to treasure it, to rejoice with great joy. And if you don't know Christ, if you're not yet vitally connected to him, and again, I go back to the scripture that I read in John chapter 15. And Jesus um, provides there a beautiful picture of what it means to be vitally connected to him. As a, as a branch is rooted and connected to a tree. In the same way, we're like that branch. Drawing strength and life and being in union and connection with the tree. That's what it means. That's how Christ pictured a vital connectedness to him. If you don't have that yet, may I encourage you to get to know him, to think about this great promise. And the reason that we as followers of Jesus, though the story sounds fantastic, though the story sounds improbable, though it sounds like a fairy tale, that our bodies will be made new again, that will be reconstituted, the reason that we believe it is because the life that Jesus lived, the miracles that he did, but primarily because of his own resurrection from the dead, which is certifiable and the most, one of the most believable facts in all of human history. That's why we believe that this fantastic story is actually true. And Christ says to you, if you don't yet have a vital connection with him, he says, whoever believes in me, whoever trusts in me, Whoever clings to me, 
to him, to her, I will give the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, like when Gideon heard your word, so now we too want to worship. We want to believe in you, to quiet our hearts before you, to focus on you, to submit to you, to, by your grace, to be obedient to you like children to their father. We thank you for the miracle of our salvation that that indeed is the greatest rescue of all, an impossible rescue made possible through the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Help us remember him here now through song, through prayer, through our offering. It's in his name we pray. Amen. It's a great story, isn't it? Isn't it a great story? Story not of Gideon, but a story of God working through a weak person, giving us hope. If there is anything that we, any way we can minister to you, any way we can serve you, if you have a prayer request, anything you want to communicate to us, you can, again, use that Connect card to share with us what God is doing in your world, what next step you might want to take. And we're going to collect that now. We'll also take our offering. It's an opportunity for us to demonstrate our love for God, to place Him first in our resources, and to support the ministry of this church, even as we go to places like Appalachia or places like, like, um, like East Asia. So uh, let's worship, let's sing, let's pray, let's invite the Spirit to continue to, uh, to minister to us, to work, work in our hearts.